0: Welcome,
1: this is the Sydney Ideas podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond.
2: Good evening everyone. Welcome to Sydney Ideas, the University's flagship public talks program. My name is Renee Ryan and I'm a professor here at the University of Sydney and also the academic director of the SAGE program, which stands for Science in Australia Gender Equity. It's my great pleasure to open and host tonight's Sydney Ideas event with Dr Kakenya Entaya on empowering girls and women in education. First, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands on which the University of Sydney is built and I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people here with us today. So, welcome to Sydney Ideas and welcome to the University. This event is co-presented with SAGE, as I said, which is a national evaluation and accreditation framework aimed at improving gender diversity bolstering women's leadership roles and improving workplace culture for all staff in the higher education and research sector in Australia. I would really like to thank Women for Change for their support um, of this event and also by bringing our keynote speaker, Dr Kakenya Antia, founder of Kakenya's Dream, to Sydney. I would also like to ex- especially acknowledge Betty Chamowa, who is the first councillor of the Kenyan High Commission that is here with us tonight. So tonight we're going to hear first from Kenya, and then we're going to be joined by a panel, um, two students that are here studying, Payen Kortom and Cynthia Nyoma, and also Dr Lisa McIntyre, who is a Fellow of Senate here at the University of Sydney and also on the Board of Women for Change. There will be time for questions um, from the audience at the end. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr and Tyre to Australia and to the University of Sydney. But you may have noticed that Kakenya is not in the room. Unfortunately, after avoiding COVID for more than two years, Kakenya has just tested positive to COVID and is currently stuck in her hotel room down the road in the city. So Kakenya is a globally recognised leader, social activist, and a senior fellow at Brown University in the USA. She founded Kakenya's dream to educate girls end harmful traditional practices, including female genital mutilation and child marriage, and transform her community in Kenya. Tonight, she'll share with us her powerful story and insights into her work in championing gender equity. Please welcome Dr. Kakenya Nthaya. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Renee, for your wonderful... uh introductions and everyone for coming this evening. I am sorry, unfortunately I can't be there with you, but I'm here and uh, the speech continues or the talk continues this evening. So I'm really excited to be here, um, to be sharing about the work that we do in Kenya um, and and for you also to meet our students that are here in Sydney. Um, I wanna start by um, just sharing a little bit about myself, but also a little bit about the work that we're doing and uh, really looking forward to a great um, uh, evening together. In, 20, in 2009, I met a young girl named Jacqueline. She was vulnerable, but there was something in her eyes that just had that strong determination. A girl like her in the part of the world where she was born was at risk of being subjected to female genital mutilation and child marriage and would likely never go beyond sixth grade in school. Her father was very traditional and believed like all the fathers in the community where Jacqueline is from, that a place for girls is not in the school where she'll be learning, but, it, uh, but to be home taking care of the family and being a wife. All of Jacqueline's older sisters had been married off in their youth and were forced to drop out of school to start families, and this was the path that Jacqueline's life was going to follow. I was drawn to Jacqueline's life because um, her life and path was mirroring my own life. Um, We both come from a very remote, marginalized, underserved Maasai community in rural Kenya. Uh, and in our community, nearly 80% of women and girls have undergone female genital mutilation. 50% are married off in childhood. And only 17% complete primary education. And less than 5% continue on to post secondary education. This is because in our community, it is commonly held belief that only boys should go to school, should be educated and women are meant to stay at home and be wives and be mothers um, and that's their life fgm which is uh you know female genital mutilation, is uh, a harmful practice is seen as a a rite of passage into womanhood and is often performed in preparation for early marriage Uh, once girls undergo fgm uh, they are forced to drop out of school uh, to get married and to start Taking care of their own family, now their mothers. Um, and this happens as soon as they are even uh, 12 years old. These old age traditional norms not only undermines girls' access to education and economic empowerment, but are also detrimental to their physical and mental health and their well-being. My own life was set to follow the traditional Maasai path to undergo FGM in preparation for child marriage. I was engaged when I was five years old, and I was to be prepared to get married when I was 12, and that was going to be the end of my education, but that was not the life that I wanted. Um, I had gone to school, and I had dreamed of becoming a teacher, and so I did something that no girl had done. I approached my father and told him, um, I will undergo FGM. Agree to let me go back to school. Um, I didn't know he would agree, but he actually agreed. So I went through FGM and I went back to school. I was very determined when I went back to school. I read and did all I could to work hard. And a few years later, I was accepted to university in the US. And that was also another big battle because in my community, they had never seen a girl leave the village, leave her own, you know, the village to go to the city or somewhere else, leave around own know the country. So I had to negotiate again uh, with the elders in my community and really promise them that I would use my education to go to the U.S., get a study, and come back and support them in, in, in whatever ways um, that I could. So I left home. And I found myself in the US, uh, the land of plenty. Um, it is truly where I want to say that my whole world was transformed. Um, for once, I had come from a place there was no running water, no 24 hours electricity. Um, I had never used a computer. Uh, I mean, I've never seen a big library. Um, and the whole world was opened up for me. And uh, that is when I. Learned so many things. Uh, my first research in college was on female genital cutting. Uh, once because I thought that I actually knew what it was, and you know I had gone through it, and you know it is a rite of passage. It was a pride in my community. Um, just to read about the me- the medical, uh, you know, uh, the physical and the mental health, and all the things that it had been doing to me, but I was quiet and and for that time I started reading about myself and somehow inside me I knew that what had happened to me was wrong and it was still continuing on in the girls in Kenya and I said I never wanted any other girl to go through that so I read and I finished my undergraduate I worked for the UN uh, because I you know as a young person finishing college I wanted just to change the world but I realized that um, that was massive and I wasn't feeling like I was traveling the world, speaking about the importance of stopping FGM, the importance of um, you know, putting girls to school, there is a human rights and all of that, but I wasn't making an impact. So I had gone back to study and work on my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, but there was something inside me that just said I couldn't wait anymore. So I decided that you know instead of just finishing my education, I can also start uh, helping my community because girls in my community could not wait anymore. So I returned home um, to fulfill that promises that I had told my people that I'll come back. And so I founded Kakenya's Dream, a nonprofit dedicated to educating and empowering vulnerable girls and ending FGM and other traditional practices like child marriage, and really wanted to transform my community, but also rural communities in Kenya. So, my organization started as a, a single school for girls. And it was at the first enrollment that day for my school in 2009 that I met Jacqueline. Uh, Jacqueline was brought to my school, the Kakenya Center for Excellence, the day that we were having the enrollment by someone who had believed in her potential. She was at a crossroad that represented two drastic differences journeys. One follows Maasai traditions, which means undergo FGM, enter marriage as a child, drop out of school, and being trapped in a circle of poverty that lasts for generations. This is the part and the norm that so many women and girls in my community through. And the other part that was there to that day was the one for choice that it required an education that would allow girls to make empowered informed decisions about their life by coming to enroll the day my school was opening Jacqueline was taking the first step towards choosing her own destiny after starting my school I quickly transformed it from a day school into a boarding school because I came to realize that girls, um, you know, teaching them was not just a, they, they just did not just need a quality education. They needed more. They needed, a, a, you know, most of them were walking, you know, miles long in unsafe places and uh, coming home, you know, to school without food. And there was so much expectations at home for for the household work that girls have to do so they had no time to spend the school to study or just even to be children Um, so for my school to work it needed to provide a holistic support to each and every one of our girls Um, once our boarding school campus remember i was a student trying to build the school and just adding on so once the school was running um, and, you know, Jacqueline and her classmates were able to be in a safe place. They could sleep at night. They had nutritional meals. Um, you know, they had the energy and the time to focus in class. Their healthcare was taken care of. You know, their support, they were given, like, the teachers were there to support them. The teachers were there to empower the girls. You know, you know they were, we encourage them. We build their self-esteem. You know, and and so they were doing more than just doing homework and studying, but they were also just playing and being children because they are nine years, they are ten years, they are children. Um, and that, you know, once destined for child marriage, early motherhood, and a life without education, happened in 2014. Jacqueline and her classmates were defying the odds and heading off to high school. Remember, I told you that in my community, only 17% of girls finish primary school. Most are forced to drop out even before finishing high school due to financial limitations, lack of support, and a lot of mounting pressure to just get married because girls are for marriage. So, though Jacqueline had done well in our national exam to transition to high school, I knew that for her to move forward, for her to thrive in this next stage of life, she needed continued support. So we started the Network for Excellence program to support our girls who are graduating from our primary school, like Jacqueline, as they continue to transition from primary school to secondary to tertiary education. Through the Network Holistic Programming, girls receive scholarships, they they receive academic tutoring, uh, social support, they receive mentorship, Um, we work with them beyond just the scholarship is also when they finish high school is to help them apply for colleges and you know to continue with their career counseling we work on we you know we train them on sexual reproductive health and in ways on effective study skills and really kind of like being there because you know 98 percent of their parents that we have in our programs cannot read and cannot write these girls are the first generations who are going to high school and, and transitioning to college. Uh, and so we needed to put all the support that we can to really transform the li- their lives. But something else that I knew also is that in my own experience, that it's not enough to just invest in girls. Um, and in order to truly, for girls to truly uh, thrive, they needed encouragement, they needed the support of their families, their peers their community yeah, and it required it required for us to educate these people about the importance of educating girls the you know why fgm is bad and why child marriage is not options for girls like little girls and really opening up the community to have a discussion about the value of the girl so as a first step what we did is we established a program we call health and leadership uh, training program and this was like our desire really to have conversations with boys so that they can be our allies. Uh, train them on vital issues about health, human rights, um, and really, you know, get into the conversations because that is where, you know, that is where we need to have the reality and really let's talk about girls. In you know, let's let's, let's empower them. Let's talk, start and and, and and really work with the with the girls. Um, over the years, we have now continued to work in over 100 schools. Um, in our community to really continue to train boys and girls and community people about the important. And really Mm -hmm. the aim of the program is to teach young people important information and that they can also take that information home and share with their siblings, their parents, and the community. And this dialogue can really continue to take place. And even though that, uh, that conversation had, you know, we've already always worked with that, we also knew that we couldn't do the work without the the importance of the parents. It's good to engage the the boys. But what is important is also to bring the fathers on because in our communities, there is no relationship between a father and a daughter. And and for us to engage the fathers in the daughter's life, uh, we needed to create ways of uh, bringing them into that. And so we would have parents meetings and we would develop Uh, Conversations around how the girl is doing in the class, and we really worked with them so that they can start seeing the potential in the girls. And it it really it was one of the greatest places where to see the parents when they start seeing the incredible potential and the confidence in their own daughters, uh, their mindset start shifting. And we have seen them now supporting girls' education, and they have become our greatest our greatest allies and supporters. We have also engaged grandparents because in our communities they are, the, they are the ones who are the proud keepers of our stories and culture. And our goal was really not to uproot the girls from the community, but we wanted to ensure that they could still embrace the important aspect of our rich Maasai culture, like beadwork and milking and all the things that we could do that mostly it was the grandmother that would teach them. So. We bring the grandmothers to tell the girls the stories. We let them have the shared community and really connect with their grandkids because that is the way to really continue the generations and the important things um, that it's important. And we, what we realized also is that for the first time, the mothers, the grandmothers, uh, we, we were the first to really start engaging them and having conversations with them. And for the first time, their voices were being heard. They were there mentoring their daughters. They were there stepping in and really transforming the daughters became, also started empowering their mothers and their grandmothers. You know, we have really also worked with the religious leaders. We have worked with, you know, elders in the community. We we work with um, the government officials. Um, We really work with the teachers. Um, you know, we get their inputs and we, we don't just, you know, come and just do stuff. We really need their strategic guidance in order for us to really success and really make sure that girls can be at the center of all the work that we are doing. So, you know, our work has been about bringing everybody to embrace the power of education, educating girls, and really showing that we can work with them and change that. So, you know, that is what we've been doing in terms of like connecting with the community. So happens, you are asking what happens for, for girls like Jacqueline when they have received a quality education, continued assistance through each stage of the education of that journey and the support and encouragement of their community and the family. So in a community where less than 2% of girls make it to tertiary education, Jacqueline has just graduated from college with a degree in business administration, and currently working in an administration department at a high school not far from our school uh, in Kenya. And she's becoming a role model, and uh, and all of her other pioneers from that class of the that joined in 2009 are also graduating from university and other higher education. And in fact, one of them is here with us today, who is completing her bachelor's degree in chemistry from Sydney Uni. Um, And it's just been an incredible. We also have Cynthia who just started um, studying and pursuing nursing degree from UTS. And to date, we have empowered and educated over 600 girls at our boarding schools. We have supported 330 girls continuing on to high school and university through our Network for Excellence program and have trained over five, 50, over 15,000 boys and girls and community members in our health and leadership trainings. More important, 100% of the girls in our program have avoided FGM and child marriage. Kenya's dream, we make it a point of support to empower girls from the moment they step in our primary school to the time they graduate at college. That once believed school is no place for girls. Today, hundreds of parents are eagerly bringing their daughters to our school on enrollment days each year in hopes of securing a place for their daughters in the coming class. This impact does not end with the girls who came through our program. As we know, one day, these girls will have children of their own. Like them, their daughters will avoid FGM and child marriage, receive an education, and be empowered to follow their own path and lead the life they dreamed of. And that is a generational shift, is the power we have at Kakenya's Dream. So unfortunately, the problem that I just stated, that we are trying to solve at Kakenya's Dream in Kenya it's not just experienced there, but it's also experienced globally. As we speak, 130 million girls between the age of 6 and 17, who are supposed to be in school and not in school, face the same barriers that our community is facing. child marriage, poverty, FTM, harmful social norms. These are all that are things that are negating the value of girls going to school and and, and that is a big problem. If we change this so that every girl in the world were able to access a quality secondary education, it will have enormous impact. And this is from the World Bank. It says that educating girls could add 92 billion to the economies of low and middle income nation, reducing their reliance on foreign assistance cutting child deaths by 50%, reducing child marriages by 66%, and have the potential to decrease violence as much as 37%. For every year that a girl stays in school, future wages increases up to 20%, which helps her, her children, and later on, she will be able to escape organizations like a Kenya's dream cannot go it alone we cannot do just this a Kenya dream we need commitment collaborations action from the global community to ensure that girls is prioritized to so accessing education are confronted and eliminated education is a human rights in it, it of itself but it also is a gateway that leads to fulfillments of other human rights girls who are able to access a quality primary and secondary education are more likely to avoid child marriage. We have seen that in my program. And to get married, their children to school and their children will also be healthier. They will also avoid early marriages. That is a generational impact. So we need to educate girls. We need to equip them with skills and knowledge so that they can achieve economic empowerment, so that we can eradicate poverty. Educated and properly supported girls like Jacqueline, Piyai, Cynthia have the power to reach the full potential and become leaders and change makers in our world. Imagine the impact of every single one of the 130 million girls not in school today. If they were given the resources, if they were supported, our world would be unrecognizable better. It is our job to make that a reality and our work begins now. To fully address the ever-present and growing needs in our region, uh, Kakenya's dream is growing. We are increasing capacity in our schools in terms of our building a second, we are building in the middle of building a second school so that we can triple our capacity we are building a youth friendly clinic so that we can uh, uh, you know meet the needs of young people in terms of the health and uh, we are also you know graduating anywhere between 30 to 45 young women and transitioning them to tertiary education and programs you know we we, we know what we have the things we have dreamt up and accomplished over the, the last 13 years truly a testament to the power of the community and what is possible when passionate people around the world come together to support an important cause. We feel so fortunate. I have been so fortunate and so incredibly supported with an incredible support from a global community. You know, I call them the Global Catania's Dream Family. It includes amazing, amazing partners like Women for Change who have made it possible for over hundred girls right now in colleges to be in college, it is there. It is people like them who are making a change in our society. To Sydney Uni for making it possible for Peiye Kortom to get an undergraduate degree, her future is so bright because you believed in her. She, you know, our world is so different. Thank you because it's because of all of us. It is because of us being passionate, taking a risk and stepping out bold, so that we can support girls, change the course of our world and create a better world for our children and everybody that comes across and around us. Thank you very much. Over to you, Renee.
2: Thank you so much, Kakenya. I've heard your story many times, but every time I hear it, I get goosebumps and a bit teary. It is truly inspirational, and thank you so much for sharing um, with us. Thank you. So I would now like to invite our students that we've already heard about, Payen Kortam, who is studying here at the University of Sydney and is in her final year of a Bachelor of Science and Liberal Arts degree and Cynthia Naima, who is has uh, recently come to Australia and is studying nursing at the University of Technology, Sydney. And I'd also like to invite Dr Lisa McIntyre up as well, who um, is representing Women for Change. So uh, Kenya, I mean, you talk about all the things that you do in Kenya, all the people you reach. You know, you started from 30 girls in 2009, and now it's thousands of boys, girls, elders, community... You're also a fellow at Brown University. You do TED Talks, you know, always doing things. How do you manage it all? You know, how do you deal with the pressure of, you know, also the pressure of being that kind of the the woman, the front woman for such a large organization that has such a large reach?
0: Um, one, I have an incredible team, um, to say the truth. I mean, Kakenya's dream is because there's so much, there are teachers at the front, day in, day out, who are with the girls, there are counselors, they are, you know, We've worked with our parents. We've worked with the community to support. So when I, I, I don't so much think about the community in terms of like, they are there, they're supporting the girls. Uh, my role is now to raise, of course, raise funds to be able to continue to support the girls um, and really share our work with the world because I think we have really done a very unique thing at a stream and there's so many people who can learn from us. Um, and I, I, I get so much energy when I, talk to these young women when I meet them, um, you know, seeing them, you know, I I met them when they're nine years old, then seeing them when they're graduating from college and, you know, it's just amazing. So you just keep going um, and really I get their their energy from um, seeing how much they they have accomplished and how bright of our world will be because they got an opportunity to learn. So
2: Great, thank you. Okay, well, Cynthia, I might start with you. How have you found the transition from living and studying in Kenya to Australia?
1: Well, uh, studying in Kenya was different because I enrolled in nursing at a university in Kenya in 2019 immediately after high school, but I didn't go to any placement until I was in second year, halfway through second year. But when I go here at UTS, and from the very first day, um, I can practice my nursing skills, and it's a good thing. Yeah, it keeps me happy to know that I'm learning both practically, theoretically, and the classes are much smaller. It's a supportive environment for education.
2: Yeah, that's a good thing. I'm oh, great. And have there been any challenges for you?
1: Yes, I had very many challenges, especially with the food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for so long I've had only bread and yoghurt and ice cream, <laughs> but thanks to Payan, Payan is a very good cook, I can
2: eat decent meals every now and then, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've heard Payan is the cook for all the girls here, they go to her house and have good Kenyan food. <laughs> So Kayan, you're getting towards the end of your degree here, majoring in chemistry. What are your wishes or aspirations, or what would you like to do next after you finish your bachelor's degree?
3: Okay, uh, finishing my undergraduate, I'm planning to do an honours, I'm I'm doing um, a graduate diploma first, and after that I'm planning to do um, a master's, and I would like to be an analytical chemist afterwards.
2: All oh, right, right. Analytical chemist. Yeah. yeah. And you'll do a master's here at Sydney? Yeah, I would love yeah. to do it in Sydney only. Yeah, great. That's wonderful. Um, and Lisa, I might uh, uh, ask you a question now. Can you tell us a little bit about Women for Change, the mission of Women for Change and how it supports students to study in Australia? So Women for Change has
4: a, a very simple mission. It is... we would like to educate young disadvantaged women from developing countries. And I think we've just heard, just with resounding passion from Kenya, we know that educating young women makes a difference. The evidence is ex- extraordinarily strong. If you educate a young woman, you educate not just her, you educate her family, and I'm borrowing your words here, Kenya. You educate a family. You educate her village. You educate a community, and I think Kenya's ambitions is we need to educate the world. So Women for Change started about five years ago, 2016, and and it's as I reflect also on on our journey, while we can't claim to to be as wonderful as what Kakenya has done with her passion and vigor, that has inspired lots of people. And it takes lots of individuals to make a change. We came together as a committee because, uh, and I think David Vo is in the audience, Learning for a Better World, heard Kakenya's story on the radio. He brought together a group of, of women to say, we need to do something that Kenya's got all these amazing young women about to graduate high school, we need to find them some tertiary degrees. So we, we helped raise funds, a lot of those young women being educated in Kenya, but there's a couple that we also wanted to educate over here, and so we asked Stephen Garton from the University of Sydney, <laughs> who is also sitting right here, and, we said, and so we found a place for one here, one at UTS, one at WSU. We needed accommodation. We asked igloo. We asked. So we we ask people, and people understand that this is important. And if you ask enough people, different people become little leaders. So Stephen leading here, David leading at LBW Women for Change, trying to help. It is a community of people that have, that come together to try and do the right thing.
2: Great, thank you, Lisa. I want to ask you a question. Um, what have been some of the challenges you face being so far from home? I mean, you've been here now for four years. How long have you been in Sydney? Yeah.
3: yeah. So, okay. So, one of the challenges um, is like uh, missing my siblings I'm from a family of 15 and yeah, it's a big family. <laughs> Yeah, and mean it's good fit. to get away from 15 siblings <laughs> <months> at times. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm it's, sure it's hard, hard being away from them. And uh, sometimes, like, uh, terrible things happen at home, like losing a, der- a narrative and you are away. Yeah, Like, a few months ago, I lost my uh, cousin, and he was one of my favorite cousins, and I was unable to attend the funeral. Yeah, and it was tough to deal with that. Mm, yeah.
2: <laughs> You have your, your, your Kenyan family here. Yeah, I have my yeah. Kenyan
3: family here. Yeah. all lineage, and, and they're yes. very supportive. Yeah, mm,
2: mm-hmm. great. And um, for you, Cynthia, how has COVID impacted your studies? You said you had to start your studies in Kenya? Yes, yeah. uh, I received
1: my scholarship to study at UTS in 2020 and mm. was supposed to begin in autumn last year. But unfortunately, I couldn't come to Australia, so I had to do half the units I could do in autumn and spring, and I had to study at 38 hours. I had to stay awake from around midnight to 9 a.m. every day to study. Sometimes I'd doze off in class. It wasn't nice, but (laughs) I made it. I got
2: distinctions and high distinctions. (laughs) I'm Wonderful. (laughs) That deserves a clap. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard enough doing online learning, Mm -hmm. but online learning on the other side of the world is a huge challenge, so congratulations. Um, And Lisa, what can we all do better to support international students to study here in Australia, full stop, and really make tertiary education accessible for everyone? Well,
4: uh, watching these young women is a good reminder that it is difficult. (laughs) It is difficult to come from Kenya, from even after your view in Nairobi and you came straight from Enosan, to come to Sydney and learn, even enrolling, when you've never used a computer before. That's that's a massive hurdle. The the hurdles that some of our international students face, we don't have sufficient empathy for that. Um, I've had to learn (laughs) empathy along the way for the challenges that that someone from a a very different background have the capability, smart, hardworking, but just a different background to, to learn. Uh, and I remember the first thing we did, actually, for Payen and for Sharon, for Lynette, Lynette we, um, we got some help to just teach computer skills, mm. actually, just basic, yeah. ha- switch it on, because everything's digital these days. So th- those sorts of issues, I think, is just a reminder. I, I don't think I can be more specific than saying, to just uh, t- deep empathy <laughs> is what is required mm. for our international students, deep empathy coupled with as much support as we can
2: give. Yeah, that's great. And care. Yeah. Support and care. Yeah. Mm. All right, one for you, Kenya, and then I'm going to open up to the audience. But you talked about um, FGM and the you know, the harmful practice it is. It's obviously still being practiced in Kenya and, and in other countries and even here in Australia um, by certain communities. What do you think that governments and other leaders can do to really try and end this practice globally?
0: So... It's estimated that um, anywhere between three three million to four million girls undergo FGM every year, and this is a global figure. It it, it actually happens in Australia um, from here here, so uh, it's not just a problem in Kenya or in Africa. It's a problem here, and you know one is of course to implement the laws that are really strict uh, to ensure that. Whoever is seeking help can actually be uh, protected by the law. Um, but we also need to face the reality and, and not shy away from educating the communities about these practices. Um, even though it's not being practiced in your house, um, your children are in school with girls who have been who will be forced into female genital cutting and it's somehow they are connected. So we need to we need to educate uh, all of us. And, and really um i think the enforcement is the biggest the law is yes you can have the law but sometimes don't implement it that is where the issue is and that's what we became very um we became successful because we involve the chief the people on the ground to really implement this uh policies yeah we need to be open-minded and uh be as uh you know really learn that we need to protect each other and we need to talk about FGM even in the classrooms and, and, and be able to face it because girls in schools
2: are, have mm. gone through FGM, yes. Yeah, that's a really good point. We need to include it in, in our education system as well. Mm. Okay, well, I think we will now open for questions. If anyone in the room has a question, we have two roving mics. Please wait until you have the microphone in your hand so everyone can hear you and also people online.
1: I'll happily start the conversation. Um, So first of all, thank you so much, Doctor, for your lecture. And I think you touched on something that's really important, and that educating boys and getting boys involved is really important. And I was wondering, I know you mentioned in the Maasai community, it's not very um, common to leave the community. Have you noticed that by the girls becoming educated, boys are also wanting to kind of follow as well and leave and go educated elsewhere as well? Like has that kind of sparked a little like domino effect? Absolutely, thank you uh, for that question.
0: So before, when we started our girls' school, uh, Paye and uh, Paye can share with you that, uh, you know, people used to be that girls' school, you know, they, they, they had no expectations for us that the girls in the school to do well. Um, but when they did their first national exam in 2014, 2013, and they performed the top in the, in the, in the county that we come from. And, uh, for the first time we were sending, uh, about 10 girls to national school that had never happened in the community in like, even in our, um, in our sub county. And all of a sudden people looked at us like, Oh, these people are smart. And uh, there was a lot of competition um, between boys and girls, and like now it's like it's now it's kind of like normal. Everybody's competing to do the best, and of course the girls are challenging uh, the boys. And we have really been able to spark that. Um, you know, in the past there was no problem. Boys were getting educated. You know, every family always had that son that they made sure that went into college so that he can be into politics or into. there was always somebody in each family that was educated in terms of male. But this was the first time that girls were changing that. And of course, when they finished the high school, uh, transitioning into college, and like, it was just amazing to see um, the first cohort of students that went through, which is PAI is part of that, really changed the community. They changed their parents. I mean. my father had never gone to past I think uh, beyond the, the one of the villages you know one of the cities but he was able to go and see where her daughter is in a city far away in college, in high school and yes being able to know that this man who had not left the village himself he was able also to take her daughter to the airport and get into on the plane it's just uh, unbelievable and those are kind of like eye-opening uh, they're able to see other women who are educated, they're able to you know have a really global mind uh, and and sometimes you just need to show people how you know, that educated woman is for them to really embrace it and now I can tell you they are real big role models. Cynthia can tell you how everybody wants their daughters to be educated and, and it's just it's amazing uh, to show
2: sometimes, yes. Oh, that's wonderful, thank you Kakenya. Any other questions? Thank you so much, Doctor, for taking your time to speak to us all today. It's so fantastic to see you
3: again. Um, what we just had a question about was, how can Australians who aren't a part of the Kenyan community support you and the work that you do and your organisation? Thank you for your question. Um, one is to join
0: the team of uh, you know Women for Change. Uh, there are representatives there today, if you wanna reach out to them. they. I really coordinating our efforts in Australia. Of course, you know, if you know, I always tell people, look at who you are with, you know, um, you know, you might have connections to foundations, you might have connections to people who have something to support the girls, especially who are here, um, you know, you can donate, uh, you, can, you can do a lot. So um, I would like to point, you know, I think there's um, Kylie Stroll,
2: Yep, there, and here. she'll be able to <laughs> yeah
0: she'll be able to really give you all the details and I'm really grateful I've really had an amazing team in Australia that have come together supported these girls uh, in an amazing way so keep it up and uh, hopefully we'll bring more girls
2: <laughs> yes yes definitely yes. yep
4: next question thanks so much and um, this question is also for you dr. Ntaya. Uh, Regarding the work you've been doing with the female genital mutilation, uh, specifically, just some more detail about how um, you first went about that. I'm sure coming into the community, um, I understand you worked with the elders and the religious leaders. But about was there pushback at the start? I'm sure there was likely some reluctance there, and how you overcame that. I'm sure that um, the education was obviously really important, but how you kind of overcame that first hurdle to people really listening and taking that on board.
0: So, you know, when we were starting the school, we did not start with saying the girls who goes to this school would not go through the cut. I mean, we knew we were going to somehow bring that up because I didn't, I didn't want to prevent, you know, girls to just come. So, uh, we brought in the girls, and literally, I think, two years later, one of our girls was forced to go through FGM. Um, the family wanted to force her to go through FGM, and we learned about it. And when I learned, I was actually not in the country, and I tried to call the chief to go intervene. He didn't intervene. I called the next person. Nobody wanted to help. Um, and then I eventually, like, connected to the highest police in, in the country uh, who now started ordering everybody down <laughs> to, to go to go save the girl, and it was really about showing because I negotiated with the chief go support the girl. He's like, you know, he took everything lightly, and so I went to the next stage, and that's where the law comes in. Really, when you have the law, it can protect you. So we had to show them that if if you know, we had to show them. So we had to rescue that girl. We had to make sure that the chief was on top and. From that day, he came to the school and he told every parent in that school, no one should touch a girl who goes to this school. He made everybody sign a contract (laughs) that they cannot. So every single year when we take the students into our school, the chief comes and talks to the parents about FGM and how they are not going to go through FGM, how they are not going to marry their daughter. And it has become like normal, and then now we've started education. Of course, the girls also themselves have become role models. They are also training other girls, and it just became normal. Like nobody now, like even talks about trying to force these girls into FGM because everybody's like, "Don't touch those girls," uh, because you have no idea what to come after you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, the power of, of angry Kikenya, I think, it would be a, a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> Was there another question down here, Tash, Just behind you. Um, So thank you so much. So um, just wanna ask that
1: it must be very difficult to establishing a girl's school in the community. So what kind of difficulties that you have when you establishing such a organization and school in your community? Thank you for that question.
0: Um, we, ha- we faced a lot when we were starting. I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh. So I was not on the ground every day. I had been talking to the elders in the community, I want to build a school. Um, and you know, the men are like, yeah, we can give you to build a school. Of course, they had they told me, oh, why don't we do a boys' school first? And I had refused. I said we want to build a girl's school. Um, and I will go and have meetings and once it's just men who came to the meetings. And then I said, no, I want the women to come to the meeting. Um, and eventually the women will come to the meeting and then the men would leave. Um, it was really tough to like bring the whole. And then I made the decision that, uh, we start with the women. So we started with the women, started building, uh, the, the hardest part was that, you know, most of the women are not educated. So. They will tell me that they don't know how to count the money, they don't know how to open a bank account. And I said, No, I'll take this, women. We'll use the signature of like your Trump to open the bank account. And the men were so happy with us at all. Um, and eventually, you know, they started seeing us build school. And then we continued, and then we continued. And then the more they saw us succeeding, they started coming up back and uh, the chief would say, oh, let's make a committee that also has men in it. So we included the men and it just, and then now they, if you go to the community now, you wouldn't think it's the community that we were starting with. It's like everybody's proud of what we have done. They we went from what do women know what to do? And the challenge I had one is that I grew up I, my family was very poor so I didn't have a status the, the the family, my dad was not present I was a little they considered me a little girl um, I had you know because I was I, I had not been married I was this, this person so they, they just said what is this child teaching us but eventually we sustained, it was tough uh, it was tough sometimes they would come and say I, we spoiled the girls, I mean the girls can tell you many stories how they were Sometimes just like say, you're spoiling the girls. They shouldn't be, you know, eating this. They should not. There was so much stuff, but we persevered. And through the successes of these young women, when they did their national exam and they excel, when they're excelling in high school, when they're excelling now graduating, it's just that has been, they, they, the girls change the community. And they're the ones that have shown that empowering girls is something. So perseverance, mm-hmm. perseverance. Great.
2: Yes. I've got a a couple of questions here that I'm going to try and combine into one. Um, First of all, Jane Hanrahan, who is our Chair of Academic Board, said, thank you for sharing your inspirational story. Your village agreed to let you go overseas to study, I'm sure, after much convincing, um, uh, if you were to return. How have attitudes changed in your village with regards to educating girls? And I think you've touched on that. But the other question here is what happens to the girls that don't get into your school? You know, it's obviously you can't educate everyone. I'm sure there are people that miss out. So how do you yeah. you, you how have attitudes changed and also how do you deal with, with the people that might want to come but but can't get in? So the
0: attitude have really changed. I mean, the young women there sitting everybody wants to send their got daughters to school. It's not even a question now there's competition and I mean, the lines sometimes are like, Kenya, please help us. And uh, so there's so much demand and people want opportunities. So we are trying to guide them on how, you know, if we can take them in our own school, where else can we support them? Uh, so we have girls that we can support in other private schools around the country. And uh, those who cannot come to my school, uh, I talked about our health and leadership training program. That program really is about um, knowledge, providing the community with knowledge. I didn't know about that, what FGM was when, until I went to college. I mean, that's when I learned about the effects and all that, those things. So knowledge is powerful. So we have put in this uh, training, which we put it in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. And and what we're doing there is like literally starting from the basics. We talk health in terms of our coming of age. Uh, We talk about Period is a, you know, menstrual period is a big problem. Uh, So many girls would stay home because they don't have menstruation period. So we provide sanitary pads and then just talk about what FGM is. And and girls start saying no because they know what it is now. Uh, We talk about the law when it comes to, um, you know, we just have, it's really a whole training program that even if they don't come to my school, they are trained on what those things is and then they can make their informed decisions and, and we also work with the parents. So we've seen a bit of a lot of support on that end when we do the trainings, but we still lack because most of our communities don't have enough resources. I think PA just told you there are 16 of them in their home. So what normally happens in that case, a girl is left out. They don't teach educate a the girl, they will educate the boy when they are limited resources. So we'll try to apply for scholarships and just do what we can. But uh, that's where the reality is. Um, there's, there's the need, there's a big need, and that's why we're expanding in terms of our schools to, to be able to take more. Yes,
2: yeah, so well, that's great news to hear that you are building and you'll triple your capacity soon. Um, so I think we can all try and help by donating as well. Okay. Oh, yep, we might take one more and then I think we might have to wrap up. Um,
1: thank you so much, Dr. Nthaya, for... Your your talk and the amazing work you're doing it was really
0: really inspiring to hear. I've got a question for Payan and Cynthia actually, which was, what are the what are some of the good things that you've like noticed in terms of coming over here and being taken care of for Women for Change, and what are some of the things, and the universities as well, and what are some of the things that could be improved.
3: Thank you. Uh, So uh, for example, during the lectures here, uh, when we come to the lecture halls, the lecturer is present. uh, They deliver the content very well. Um, Okay. Also, uh, on Canvas, you can get the uh, recorded lectures. But unlike uh, so compared to my friends in Kenya, so they normally tell me how their classes go. Sometimes the lecturers don't attend. Okay, you can find like um, extra content on Canvas that you can go through to understand whatever they were teaching. But here, the lecturer really makes sure that you understand everything. Yeah, and that's really good. And also, uh, coming to Sydney, um, so when I was new or, or in my first year, I didn't really know how to use the computer very well. But right now, um, I'm, very, I'm very good at it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That's great. What about you, Cynthia? What's worked well and what could be improved? Well, uh, I studied in a
1: university in Kenya, as I told you before, for two years. And as a nursing student, not going on any placement during that period is so bad because now my classmates, well, from the other university, and have like placements every day. They can't go on holidays. They literally have no holiday break because once you're out of class, you're in placements. It's not easy for them. And well, it was a starting university, so they didn't have many lecturers and some of the lecturers have retired. They're really taking it hard. They have to do everything on their own, the research projects on their own. And I kind of pity them or I feel like it that I'm here at UTS. The classrooms are big, smaller. I mean, it's a more interactive session I have literally half the number of classmates I had last year, and I get opportunity to talk as a shy girl. No one noticed me in the other university because I never asked questions. <laughs> but here, the lecturer would literally make me speak and <laughs> practice. And it's so a that's good a good thing. and a bad thing. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> thing. <laughs> For most of the part and yes, there's just. Lots of opportunities here. There's support systems at the university, there's women for change supporting. Literally everyone is supportive, and yeah, it's a good thing to develop me career wise. And the bad things, I'm not sure. No, food food can be improved. improved. Yes, Yes. the food. (laughs) Yeah, we've already talked about the food a lot today. I'm gonna have to come. Yeah, and another have good thing that has happened is I know how to use Google Maps now. <laughs> I've never <laughs> used Google Maps before. Yeah, I've never used Google Maps before. And I, in Kenya, well, the next person you find is your map. But here you can't <laughs> ask anyone or everyone for directions, so you have to figure it out on your own. And another good thing is my family gets to use a smartphone now because they have to find ways of communicating with me. Communication would have been so difficult because, mm. well, before my mom wouldn't have known what a smartphone lo- a smartphone looks like, but now she's forced to know how to use a smartphone, mm. social media, and stuff like that, because she has to find ways of communicating with me, and that's a good thing, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't think about that, the kind of spread of <laughs> technology, as you said, and that, mm-hmm. that it affects your family, and, and the positive impact yeah. um, is far and wide. Well, thank you very much, Payanne and Cynthia, for joining us. And, of course, thank you so much, um, Kakenya, for joining us tonight. I'm so sorry you couldn't be here with us. And I really hope that you don't feel um, too unwell and you just have to be bored <laughs> in your hotel room for seven days. But we are glad you made it to Australia. And, yes, uh, we thank you very much. Um, we'd also really love for you to join us next Wednesday, the 25th of May, for another great event with Tila Reed on the eve of Reconciliation Week. Um, And, again, all of the info is on the Sydney Ideas website. We really appreciate all of you coming and particularly thank you for those that joined us in the room tonight. Good night.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the
4: transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.